But even those among us who are Christians, many times we go through such a valley in life in a moment in time, they say, Pastor, I'm not sure. Because Satan has a marvelous way of causing us to feel defeat, we often feel distanced. So this whole passage is really, how can you know that you know that you know Jesus? And today we're going to walk on some very difficult terrain. In fact, it's very painful. Maybe that's why this song got to my heart so much is because this week I've walked in this verse and I don't love this sermon. I'd much rather preach John 3.16 than John, 1 John 5.16 and 17, but we're committed to it. And not to preach it would be telling less than the whole truth. So this morning I ask you to look with me, 1 John chapter 5, because John wants us to know that we know Christ. And we know, one of the ways that we know him is if our prayers are answered, and that's the context here, how do you pray and know that he hears you? Verse, 1 John 5 verse 12, the one who has the Son, you don't need a Greek commentary. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. John said, I've written these things, not just 1 John, but the gospel. I've written about Jesus. I've written these things, my writings to you. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There it is. He that has a son has life. Do you know Jesus Christ? I don't say know about him. Do you have a time and place? Say right there, I came to know Christ. I'm not your judge. I'm just the pizza delivery boy bringing bread from the ovens of heaven. The Bible says, if you, have, if you have the Son, you have life. You don't have the Son, you don't have a prayer. So he says in verse 12, I've written these, says you may believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Verse 14, this is the confidence here again. He used the word know in 12 through 13. Now he says this is confidence, again, that assurance. This is the confidence we have. How do you know if you really know him? When you pray, what is the significance? Whenever we ask anything according to his will, and there's the, there's the difficulty. We have, the Bible says we have not because we ask to fulfill our own desires, to waste on our own lusts. We wonder, well, why didn't God answer me? Was it for the kingdom or for you? Was it for the glorification of God or for the glory of man? They say, when we pray anything according to his will, he hears us. That's the way you know that you're in line with him if you're praying in tune with his spirit. The one, it says, we have confidence. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And here again is the word no. He's talking about assurance. We have confidence, verse 14, verse 15. We know that he hears, that he hears whatever we ask, and we know that we have what we've asked him for. Now, verse 16 and 17 is painful, so buckle up. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not bring death, he should ask and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't bring death, there is a sin that brings death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin that does not bring death. That sounds like some double speak, but let's see what John was implying and teaching in this powerful text about knowing that we know God, knowing that he hears us when we pray, but there's a prayer he will not hear. <laughs> First of all, we need to remember that all of us have sinned. And though he says, if you see a brother commit a sin unto death, don't pray for that. But if you see a brother that's in sin, pray and God will give him life. He'll forgive that sin. So what is the difference between a sin not unto death and a sin that's unto death? 
The Bible says all wages of sin is death. But here it is. Before we knew Christ, we sinned. And after we know Christ, we sinned. And that's why John in 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sin, he doesn't put a qualifier. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Why? Because we have a proclivity to sin. The difference is when we sin with Christ, we hurt. We feel alienated. Our conscience bites us. When we sin without Christ, we say, so, so, I don't care. Who are you to tell me what I ought to do? I don't feel anything. There are many people you know at work say, I don't understand you Christians. I don't feel bad about what I do. That's not bragging rights. That's cemetery plots. Because the man who no longer feels the convicting power of God is dead in sin. This generation loves zombies. No wonder. That's what they are. Walking dead men. When you don't know Christ and from all indications, there's a vast number that don't. When you don't know Christ and you live devoid of Christ, you are a walking dead man. Here's what it says. He who believes in Jesus is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned when? No kidding. Already. So, so scripture here is very clear. And here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says there's temptations in the world. Now remember temptation and sin. Temptation is, the attempt to, uh, is Satan's attempt to try to lure you into sin. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted. So you say, I know I must be a sinner because I'm tempted all the time. Jesus was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. So the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll, he'll not let you be tempted. Now, please don't misquote this. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. The corrupted version of that is God won't put anything on you more than you can bear. That's not what that says. How many of you would give a testimony? Pastor, I've had times when there was more on me than I could bear. You're not being honest. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, whatever he's going through, I despaired of life. How would we say that? Pastor, the burden was so heavy, I didn't want to get up tomorrow. I hurt so bad, I didn't want to go on any more mission trips for fear I would once again be beat up and, and put in prison. Why did he cry out to God three times, not three times, many three times, three seasons he fasted and begged God, please take this thorn from me. It's more than I can stand. He said, no, if my grace is with you, it'll be sufficient. Don't, don't misinterpret when it says with a temptation, he won't put more on you. He won't crush you with a temptation. Their burdens in life, they'll drive you to your knees. There are burdens in life that will break your heart. There are burdens in life that will cloud your mind. There are burdens in life that can make you physically ill. That's why we have to cry out to God because there's nothing too heavy for him, but there's plenty too heavy for me. But it says with a temptation, he won't put more on you. He's not going to crush you by allowing Satan to tempt you to the point of breaking your faith. He'll provide you a way out. The Bible says in Hebrews when they said, you just don't understand how hard it is, the Hebrews writer would say, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. <sighs> I don't like that verse either. We whine when the sin gets so close that we want to do it more than we want to please God. But he said, did you resist to the point of sweating drops like blood? No. You've completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you. Sometimes what we take as 
God just doesn't like me. I'm going through so much difficulty. He couldn't like me. He said, wait, wait, wait just a minute. Did it ever dawn on you that God really loves you and he's trying to break that stuff in you that's not like him so he can fill you up with that which is like him? And if you won't yield to his mercy, he will send discipline to bring you to his attention. Hebrews chapter 12, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when God rebukes you because the Lord, verse 6 of Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Did your daddy and mama ever chasten you? Did you think they loved you when they said, this hurts me a whole lot more than it does you? I'd often think to myself, then let's trade places. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God's not treating you. God's treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by the Father? If you're not disciplined, everybody undergoes discipline. If you're not disciplined, you're not legitimate. Now that has a whole new meaning in biblical times. If you were an illegitimate, an illegitimate child and it was found out you were illegitimate, you were put on the curb. You didn't have a daddy, you didn't have a mama, and you didn't have a life except to beg and believe that somebody's going to feed you so you don't starve tonight. Said so you're not receiving the discipline of God. Maybe you ought to check your birth card. You never know what it is for God to chastise you when you do wrong. You better check your birth certificate. Every daddy, it says, disciplines his children because he wants what's best for them. So the Bible says this in 1 John 5, 16, when we see a brother sinning, now I'm going to give you some choices and you tell me what we most often do and respond in kind with an amen. Will you do that? Thank you for that good response. Here we go. You ready? Here's the test. Four choices. If you see your brother sin, take a picture and put it on Facebook. What world do y'all live in? If you see your brother sin, don't tell it till Sunday and tell only the Sunday school class and say it as a prayer request. <laughs> what church do y'all go to? If you see your brother sin, call a friend and say, now don't tell anybody if you see your brother sin, right? Boy, y'all are quiet. You know what the Bible says? You see your brother sin, do What? It's in the book. Are y'all looking? If you see your brother sin, do what? Verse 16. You see your brother sin, do what? <laughs> Verse 16, 1 John 5. You see your brother sin, do what? No kidding. Is that our first response? Is it our second response? Third? Somebody give me a number. Fourth? Do I hear five? If you see your brother sin, it says the first thing y'all do is pray for him. If you were doing something you shouldn't, would you want to be made public? Or would you want somebody to say, I love you too much to let you get away with that. I'm not coming to you because I despise you. I'm coming to you in privacy because I love you. I want to pray for you. Reckon there'd be more Christians filling these green seats that dropped out because they felt like they'd been judged and removed. Oh, my. Paul spoke about two incidents where somebody sinned and it was costly. See, the reason we pray for a brother in sin is, first of all, that they'll come to their senses and confess it before what? Scripture uses two words and they're very difficult. 
a foothold and a stronghold. It says if we're not careful, Satan will get a foothold and it can become a stronghold. What does that mean? When, 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 you're, when you're making a path through new ground or you're going up a side of a hill or for those people who do rock climbing or something else, the first person up has to make some footholds. They may have to chisel a spike, uh, hit a spike into the side of a rock or chisel something out so somebody can put their foot in there or put a rock, uh, hope there's a rock just in the right place so you can at least put your foot to reach up and pull yourself up. That's a foothold. And some of us have allowed sin in our lives where Satan says, I can get to your heart because you've left me a foothold. It's real easy to gain access because you, you didn't confess it. And I've, I've got easier access now than the first time you sinned. And even the second, now you kind of made a foothold. But if you don't confess that, guess what? Now it's a stronghold. What happened? He moves in and builds a fortress. And now he dwells in that fortress. And he can take shots at you at will. Why? Because we're closer to allowing him access than we are to giving God sovereignty. And when he has a fortress in your heart, all he has to do is fire fire a volley because it's at close range. And suddenly you succumb. So so why do we pray for a brother in sin? First of all, that he'll confess it. Why Why do you want somebody praying for you when you sin? You do not want a fortress of Satan in your heart. You want to get it out before there's even a foothold. You don't even want a path. So the Bible says, pray for your brother, pray for him that the sin would be forgiven and pray that it be removed now so that sinning Christian doesn't become a, a, a hindrance to the church, a hindrance to his family and a hindrance to the kingdom. First Corinthians five talks about somebody that committed a sin that brought shame on the church. If you remember, the Bible says in first Corinthians five, that the the church in Corinth was doing things that shocked the pagans. What does he say was happening? He says, even the pagans were shocked to find out a, a, a man in the church was sleeping with his father's wife. Not, not his mama, but his father's wife. A woman had married a daddy and now both were having sex with her and said, even the pagans don't condone that. And that was in the church. And you say, well, that never happens in the church. You don't reckon anybody's ever committed adultery with somebody they met in Sunday school, do you? Do you? The Bible says you better be careful because you know what the, the Scripture says? In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, it says, or let me read verse 4. 1 Corinthians 5, well, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Lord Jesus, listen to this. Turn that one, that, that person who's committing that grievous a sin, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That doesn't sound very affirming, does it? And a generation says, give me a feel-good gospel. He said, if people in the church are doing those things that bring shame on the name of Christ, shame on the church, shame on their family, and shock the pagans, pray Give it, pray that he'll go all whole hog right into Satan's grasp so that perhaps by destroying him in death physically, at least maybe at the end he'll confess his sin and get right with God. Is that in the book? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 through 5. 1 Timothy 1, he speaks again about two people named Hymenaeus and Alexander. And they were creating a division in the church. And he said, I've delivered them over to Satan so they may t- be taught not to blaspheme. What would that mean, deliver to Satan? Nobody's going to pray for you. 
Nobody's going to come beg you to get back in church. No, no, nobody's going to come say, I sure wish the Lord would bless you. It says just give them up and give them over to say, give them over. I don't even like to say that out loud. Give them over to Satan so that the buffeting of the one they say, I really don't want to serve God. I love this more and Satan offers me this. I'm going over this camp. He says, then let them go and get the full whammy of Satan's attacks. And maybe when their flesh is destroyed, that glimmer of hope and light that was once in them will be rekindled and they can be saved eternally though they perish physically. I told you it's going to be rough. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 and 20. In other words, the best hope for some sinners is that they face the consequences of sin while they're still in the flesh. And by the d despicable treatment they get from the hands of Satan, they'll say, like the prodigal, my, my, the servants of my Father in heaven don't even live like this. How did I wind up here in a pigsty eating slop when I was a child of the king, enjoying the blessings of God. So what's the sin unto death? In the Catholic Church, they've made it, I'm going to give you four illustrations. In the Catholic Church, they've said there's two kinds, venial, venial sins, and mortal sins. Venial sins can be forgiven. Mortal sins cannot be forgiven. So they said there's two categories. There's sins that are forgivable, and there's sins that are not forgivable. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said that there, the, some of the sins that cannot be forgiven are murder, idolatry, fraud, denial of Christ, blasphemy, adultery, fornication. If you commit those sins, you will not be forgiven. Well, that, that sounds good, but then if you do that, if you commit adultery, you can't be forgiven. What are we going to do with King David? If you committed fornication and multiple marriages, what are you going to do with Solomon? If you committed blasphemy and denied you knew Jesus, what, in a moment of anger, what are you going to do with Peter? If you kill people, what are you going to do with the Apostle Paul who said, I destroyed the church by killing Christians? There must be forgiveness in there somewhere because we still read about those people with honor, though they send heinous sins. So one category, would, there are those who'd say the sin unto death or such a terrible sin, God would not forgive it. Secondly, is the sin and death could be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I will say that's where the majority of people land, that when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, now what does that mean? The Holy Spirit, contrary to Tulsa and modern America and charismatic movements who, who saw them talk about the Spirit, we don't deny, please, I pray you don't deny the power of the Spirit of God. But because we've seen so much abuse, we often try to not talk about him, we just talk about Jesus. But remember... And it's not because we don't believe the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus said in John's gospel, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll bear witness of me. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll bring to remembrance everything I've taught you. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll be the seal of your redemption. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's the earnest of God, guaranteeing your future inheritance. Now, in all of that, there is no indication. The Holy Spirit says, call me out and praise me. God would send his spirit and it would move on the heart of a man and people would talk to God the Father. Not because the spirit wasn't present, because he's a prompter. When the apostles burst out of the upper room, though they had been filled with the Holy Spirit, they didn't say, we've come to tell you about the Holy Ghost. He's the most wonderful thing we ever met. 
No, they came out and said, that Jesus you crucified on a tree is the Son of God. And 3,000 people said, we want to know Him. So, so, so what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? When the one who's the primary witness of who Jesus is, is denied, rejected, and, and thought to be of nothing, it's unforgivable. There is no greater witness of who Jesus is than the Holy Spirit of God. And when a man says, don't talk to me about God, I don't want to hear about Jesus, and sure don't want to hear about conviction by the Spirit, God said, then there's no other hope for you. Because if you don't receive the witness of the Spirit of God of who Jesus is, why are you going to listen to a preacher <laughs> or friend or father or mother? So the Bible says the sin and death can be blasphemy. That's what I think it is. Third inference of sin and death could be apostasy. That means a believer can get to the point that he loses his salvation. Now, now before you start there and say, well, that's what I think that is, remember John, the writer John, talked more about security, eternal life, and absolute, uh, 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 absolute confidence that you have eternal life. He talked more about it than any other apostle. So if the sin unto forgiveness is, now you can lose it, then you're going to have to go through and tear out an awful lot of pages out of John and 1 John who spent so much time talking about the assurance of your salvation. Apostasy says, I, I once had faith, but I've turned so far away, I don't have it. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what that is to me. There are many people who have a warm fuzzy that never got converted. There are people that have an emotional experience that never met Jesus. Some are in this room. There are people who say, oh, I, I know I'm here. I just, I cried and cried. You ever peeled an onion? Was that spiritual? There are many, many people who confuse physical responses to spiritual depth. Don't. There are many people, there are many people who profess what they don't possess. I know I'm saved today and I prayed the prayer. How old are you in a 73? And what difference Christ made in your life? What do you mean? I mean, what did he do for you? What, what, tell me about this week walking with God. What? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You see, if you've never grown in your faith, you've never ever had hunger for the Word of God, you've never thirsted for more living water, you've never wanted to develop spiritual feet to walk in high places, you've never had a passion to grow in your strength with God, you've never wanted to be nearer to Him than at the beginning, I'd really want to check my birth certificate. Because it's very easy to fall away from what you profess that you never possessed. To me, it's possible for a person who, to profess, I'm a member of the church. I, I was baptized at eight, but I try not to let that affect anything. That's not apostasy. That's called lost. You went through a ritual that had no meaning in your changed life, and you've never moved from your lostness. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked, but whatsoever man sows, that's what he's going to reap. And then there's a sin unto death, which is physical. I, I want to talk real quickly about three. Uh, W.A. Crystal, one of my heroes with the Lord now, he, he says there were three. This sin unto death, he says, and, and let me just go back and clarify, because somebody say, well, can you just make it real clear? The Bible says there's a sin not unto death. Now, what does that mean? First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us. So there must be sins we can be forgiven for. 
The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So continually sinning without seeking God's mercy and forgiveness and the filling of the Spirit to live above that, if we don't ever wrestle with sin but we're totally content to go with the flow, the Bible says we are without hope. We don't, we don't know Christ. But when you know Christ, there's that internal struggle. Paul would write in Romans 7 about that battle within the old man and the flesh and the new man and the spirit. I don't know what's wrong with me. I just keep fighting, don't you? Paul would say it's because sin still has such a grip on my life, don't you? But every day, don't you just hate it when you get up? Can you imagine heaven being no temptation except to glorify God? Won't that be glorious? So, so there are sins that we commit that when we're convicted and we know they were wrong and we run and say, Lord God, please forgive me. I don't want to do that. I don't mean to say that. I don't want to think that. I don't want to feel that way about those people. Please forgive me. There's a sin that God will forgive. In other words, if he's provided grace to forgive it, when we confess it, he'll forgive it if we ask. So there's sins that don't necessarily lead to death because our flesh is weak. We are never going to be perfect in this life. And so we have to confess our sin because he knows we're frail. But the Bible says when we've confessed our sin, he's forgiven it. There is a sin unto death and, and personal belief. The primary one is the one scripture says in Matthew, Mark's gospel if a man blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, he cannot be forgiven. If you reject the witness that Jesus Christ, virgin-born Son of God, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay for our sin, buried in a tomb to taste death, rose from the grave to give us eternal life, ascended to heaven to reign with the Almighty, and soon coming for his own. If you reject that testimony of the Spirit, there is no plan B. There's not another gospel. And that's unforgivable. But... I want to say two or three things quickly. Any sin, now, now be, stay with me, any sin can become a sin unto death when it becomes so locked in me, I love that sin more than I love Christ. What is that called? Idolatry. Anything that's between me and the light of the Almighty, I love more than I love Him. God forbid, been married 44 years. But if I told you, baby, I love you, but not as much as that woman over there. Now, I love you, but boy, now I got to tell you, I want to be with her. She'd say, you're going to have to choose. I didn't want to be one of those you love. I wanted to be the only. You promised to forsake all others and love only me. When you came to Christ, you probably singing, if you came as a young person in our generation, they were singing, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. There's a sin, any sin can become a sin unto death. When I say, I, I, I know about Jesus, but I got to tell you, this, this is good. I, and I really, <laughs> he knows me. And then this generation, you know, he made me this way. So the ultimate blame is mine. I, I'm just a puppet. He made me this way. You can't say, you can't condemn me. I'm just doing what he made me to be. Let, let's run with that a minute. Anybody ever struggle with anger in this room? <sighs> Y'all sure are sanctified on Sunday morning. <laughs> Let me just say, I, I've been known to get angry. I mean, red face, steam out my ears, snorting like a bull, ready to take somebody out angry. Y'all don't look shocked. That concerns me. But the truth is, <laughs> let's suppose I just had a spell. And I said, I'm so mad, I'm going to just kill him. But now, 
God, you made me to have anger, and I know you're going to forgive me if I kill him. First of all, he needs it, and secondly, I'm capable, and you made me this way. When you, don't y'all think that it, can I get an amen? May I have permission because I got somebody in mind. Can I have permission? <laughs> Why are y'all not voting on this? Well, God made me angry. He gave me anger. Surely he didn't intend for me to bottle it up, not use it. And I got some real good candidates I'd like to practice on. Don't, don't, don't you? You say, Pastor, that's absolutely stupid. Yeah, it is. Would you say there are people today say I'm the way I am because God created me this way? Why are y'all so quiet? God didn't create you to be a sinner and then condemn you. He created you to be like Him, but we have a proclivity to sin. And when we sin, we say, I'd rather be like this than like you. So a sin and death can be when I say, I love this sin more than I love God, and that becomes idolatry. Well, real quickly, two or three things. First of all, I believe there's physical death. I don't have time today, but you can go back and read the last part of Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 4, the last two verses talk about a man named Barnabas. And that day and age when those, all those people had come to Jerusalem and suddenly saved, how do you feed 3,000 people? How do you take care of 3,000 people and stay and be discipled? And so the Bible says in Acts 2, they held all things in common. That's not communism. Communism says what's the gov- what you have is the government's, we'll take it. Christianity says what I have is God's, I'll give it. That's a totally different approach. And, and so Barnabas had a piece of land. He sold it, brought it all. The Bible says he gave the whole proceeds of a piece of land, brought his apostles' feet to take care of those saints. And evidently, the church said, Yea, verily, yea, men, Barnabas, what a great soul you are. Let a nice fire were in the crowd. And they thought, Whoa, we'd like to be praised like that. So they got together and said, You know, we got some stuff we could sell, but here's the deal we won't, we won't give it all. Now, they won't know that we didn't give it. We'll just give some, but they'll give us the same praise they gave Barnabas. They'll say, oh, Ananias Sapphira, you're so sacrificial. We just, don't, we just can't say enough good things about you. Let, let's do it. I, I could use some of that praise, Ananias. Me too, sweet Sapphira. And so they sold it. And here's the problem. It says, and they held some back. But they profess, we're giving all like Barnabas did. So what's the problem? They're liars. You see, God doesn't require you to give it all. <laughs> and most Baptists wouldn't. But he says, if you're going to give, be honest in what you give. They wanted to ride in the coattails of Barnabas. And they said, well, we'll tell them we gave all, but we kept some back. And the Bible says when Ananias brought his gift in and was confronted by Peter, he dropped dead on the spot. I hope nobody drops dead today at the offering box. We didn't bring enough ushers. And Sapphira shows up and he says, Sapphira, i got to ask you a question. Did you? She said, well, uh, uh, and God struck her dead. And so instead of getting praise, they had double funerals. There is a sin unto death. I think there are times when God takes people out physically because they impair the progress of the gospel in their sphere. The church was in its infancy. Had that spirit proliferated, others would have said, well, you know, they didn't give everything, but they said they did, so we'll do the same thing. And now what you have is a whole congregation following the sins of corrupt people instead of the faith in God Almighty. And God said, I'll take you out. Secondly, there's a sin of missed opportunity. Not only is there a sin of physical death, there's a sin of missed opportunity. 
I wish I had time. You have to go back and read the book of Numbers to get it. But Numbers chapter 12 tells a story about the children of Israel when they were standing at the precipice uh, of going into the land of uh, promised land. Numbers 13 and 14. I just give you a summary. They had made it all the way from where they were in Egypt to right there. I mean, right at the threshold. And they did a bad thing, elected a committee, wouldn't you know it. And they sent the committee in and said, now we want you to go spy out the land and tell us about the inhabitants, tell us about the cities, tell us this is a good land, does have trees, water, tell us about it. And they were gone 40 days. And they cut at Eshkol, which means Valley of the Grapes. They cut a big cluster of grapes. And Dave, if you go to Israel, you'll see that symbol on the side of everything that's Israeli. That's their national symbol. It's two men carrying a pole with a huge cluster of grapes on the pole because the fruit was so abundant. Spies came back and said, oh, it's a good land. Boy, everything you heard is true. It's got trees, water. It's got beautiful, uh, 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 beautiful landscapes. It's got all kinds of good fruit to eat. It's got animals. But boy, those people over there are huge. They got all the Amalekites, and they got the Hittites, and the flashlights, and the pen lights, and the LED lights, and all of them. And they're all in there. And they were terrified. And you know what they said? We must not go up into the land. Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. Joshua said, for me and my house, people said, we, we, listen to stupidity, we want to elect a leader and go back. Does anybody find that bizarre? Do you need a leader to put you in reverse? Leaders don't go backwards. And people go backwards are not being led, they're following dread. Suddenly, God became so angry at the people. You remember the story, Numbers 13 and 14. They said, we're going to die out here in the wilderness. I don't know why God didn't just let us die in Egypt. We're not going to go in. Our children are going to be plundered. I just, I just don't know why God didn't let us just die. God was listening. He said, Numbers 14, I heard you. And I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. You're going to get your wish. No one 20 and over will enter the land. Every one of you whiners are going to be buried in the wilderness. I'm going to send you on a tour that's one year for every day that the spies had a chance to come back and say, God is so good what a land he's given to us. He said, I'm going to give you one year to remember your whining till you die in the desert. For every day they walked on God's promised land I was ready to give you. That doesn't sound like the affirmation sermons I hear in Tulsa. There is a sin unto death. You can lose your physical life. You disobey God long enough. You, you can lose your opportunity. By the way, we're in a generation where I heard this week one-third of all graduating college seniors are socialists. You're not going to fight that one with bullets. And may I just say, once we lose our nation... You won't have to worry about your children or their children's children having it back. You can lose your life, you can lose your opportunity, but sadly, you can lose your soul. I, I, I'm going to read this one to you. In fact, I want you to see it because some of you, it's been a while since we're there. I want you to look with me in Gospel of Luke just a minute. I, I, I want you to see this if you would. Turn, turn if you would to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, you see there's not only a physical death and death of opportunity, but there's 
death forever when you're separated from God. Now, what I'm about to read you is not a parable. Jesus didn't say, I want to tell you a parable. This is, he said, I want to tell you about a man. This is a true account. And some of you are offended when you hear about hell, but hell is the person who dies without Christ and forever separated from God. And hell is real. The person that told us more about hell than anybody was Jesus. He compared it to the city down to Jerusalem called Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom. It's where they take dead bodies that were not claimed and throw out there on the gas heap, uh, on the garbage dump. They take their garbage and burn it. And that's why it says hell is a fire that burns day and night. It, it says it's a place where the worm never dies. You ever been to a garbage dump, dump seen maggots? You know people in your life say, I don't want to go up there to heaven. You're going to get your wish. But I don't think you're going to like it when you pull up and you're at 103 Hell Street. Look with me in Luke 16. There's a sin unto death. Look at Luke 16 verse 19. It was a rich man. See, many times the most difficult person to reach with gospel person says, I don't need him. I, I got everything I need. Well, keep, stay tuned here. There was a rich man who would dress in purple as the best of the, that was a designer wear then, dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. So he had all he wanted to eat. He dressed good, had a good home. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was left at his gate. Now remember back then they didn't have disposals. They just took the pieces of food that nobody wanted to eat and they threw them out in the street and dogs and beggars would fight over the big chunks. He lived out there by the gate trying to beat the dogs to the groceries leftovers. But a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores was left at the gate. He longed to be filled. He said, I sure wish I could just eat one big meal at his table, but no, at bread I throw out. It's enough for you, man. He longed to be filled with what was at the rich man's table and said the dogs would come and lick his sores. How, how's that for hospital care? And the rich man didn't even see him. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in torment in hell or Hades, the place of the dead. He looked up. Now, here's the problem. In hell, you can see heaven. Isn't that sad for those that are lost? Being in torment in hell, he looked up and he could see Abraham. Do you see that? He could see heaven. In fact, he could see enough to realize that that's Abraham. How did he know? He didn't live in the area of Abraham because when you die, you have that insight and you know even as you're known. He looked up and he saw Father Abraham all the way up in heaven and it wasn't next door. It says a great way off, a long way off. And guess who was with Abraham? Lazarus, that beggar. And suddenly he gets spiritual. Father Abraham. Now he hadn't prayed during his life, but amazing in hell, you kind of get urgent. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus, dip the tip of his finger in water, cool my tongue. I'm in agony in this flame. Son, remember that during your life, don't, isn't that going to make hell horrible that you have your memory? You know anybody has been to church and said, I don't need that. And hell, they're going to remember their visit. They're going to remember the times you begged them. Can I just talk to you? Nope. See, in hell, you got your memory. Isn't that awful? Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received his bad things, but now he's, conform he's comforted here and you're in agony. Verse 26, besides all this, there's a great chasm, a great gulf fixed between us, so heaven and hell are not next door to each other. 
There's a great gulf fixed between us so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. And Father, he said, I beg you, send him to my father's house. I got five brothers to warn them so they don't come here. Now, how many of you say, I don't want to go to heaven and play a harp. I want to go where we can party hardy. This guy's there. He sounds like he's inviting friends. Is he trying to start a movement? Go tell everybody you can't get on this bus. It's great here. He says, I got five brothers. I'd give anything in the world somebody talked to them. I do not want to share this with them. For them to have to share this hard place with me. I've got five brothers. I want them to avoid this place of torment. Verse 29, Abraham said, they have the law and the prophets. Moses and the prophets, they've heard the law of God and they've heard the prophets teach repentance. They ought to listen to them. No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead would go, they'd repent. How's that work for 2,000 years? He said, if they don't listen to Moses, the prophets, they're not going to be persuaded, though someone rises from the dead. Real quickly, here's a picture. You and I like the dark in Oklahoma because at night the lights come on and you can see the stars and the moon and street lights and store lights and all those twinkly lights, and that's beautiful, but... It's not near that much fun when your place is totally dark. You've been in a cave where they cut off all the lights. Now, the difference between cave and hell, the cave is cool and damp. Hell is hot and dark. In a cave, they cut off the lights, have you sit down because they're afraid you might step over and off the path into a deep ravine or a crevasse, or you might hit your head on, uh, on a column. And so they're saying, sit still. But in hell, you're wandering around, and people are moaning and gnashing teeth. Do you like that? Oh, oh, oh. I don't even want to go to the hospital when the guy across the hall is holding, help me, oh, help me, somebody help me. I cut my visit short because I, I, can't, I can't take that. You can't imagine hell. That's the chorus. It's dark. You can't see where you're stepping. And you may step in and say, oh, oh. And now there's somebody that says it's totally dark. How dark is it? You can't see outer darkness. The Bible says it's a place that, where the worm doesn't die. And the Bible says it's a place where there's gnashing of teeth, pain, agony. That doesn't sound good, does it? But you know the people say, I, I don't want to go to heaven. Get off my back. God's listening. Suddenly, these, this man found himself there. Rich man, he'd never known what it was to do without. But boy, suddenly he found out all of my money and my wealth and my prestige doesn't count for anything here. By the way, it doesn't count for anything in heaven either. The goods of this world and the reputation of this world go with you to the grave. Only those who know Christ have value in heaven forever. For he is the chosen Lamb of God who has all things in his hand. Lazarus suddenly, poor, the rich man looks up and he sees somebody he knows. Isn't that horrible? You know when you look up, some people say, well, I just don't think I can be happy if I, if I think daddy didn't make it. Or I, I don't think I'd be happy if my, if my son didn't make it. You won't see them. They'll see you. But, but tonight, if, if we were in this room after it got dark, those big old plate glass windows, you, you come up here at night when they've got something in the room, you can drive right by there and you can see who's in the room, who's on the platform, what they're watching on the video. And if you wanted to, you can come press right up there pretty close to the glass and just see, is my friend here? And you can search the crowd till you found them. But they wouldn't know you're out there. Why? Because when you're in the light, you can't see in the dark. But the people in the dark can always see into the light. Here's that rich man down in hell and looks up and he sees that old beggar. 
That's pretty good vision. No, God allows you to see those you need to see to remind you what might have been. Isn't that horrible? You know what makes hell hell? David said, if I go into heaven, you're there. If I descend to the depths of hell, you're there. What does that mean? I cannot escape your presence. And if you've blasphemed him all your life and suddenly you have to look up and see what might have been, you don't think that's hell unto itself? And you see that person, you see that person that didn't have anything but had faith, and you used to laugh at them. I thank God I'm not one of those beggars. Look at them gnawing on the bone like a dog. God said, I heard you. But he had faith, and you had faith in your goods. Now he's comforted, and you're in misery. Would you rather succeed for a season and die forever, or struggle for a season and be abundant living forever? The Bible says while he's in that pit, he looks up and he sees his servant. And here's what he says. Could you ask him, just give me one drop of water? You ever been so thirsty, you said you might. Would you just put one drop of water on my, uh, on my one good drop of water? You ever been that thirsty, you said one drop will do it? Me either. I hate heat. Thank goodness we're in October. I got saved so I wouldn't be in hot heat forever. I don't know what's wrong with you other people love summer. Why did he just ask for one drop of water? What, what, what water is there in heaven? The Bible says coming out of the throne of God down the central street of the city is the crystal flowing river of water of life. What was he saying? If he just put one drop on my tongue and I had one second, I'd cry, forgive me, I repent, take me to where you are. Could I have one more chance? Would you give me one more hymn of invitation? Would you give me one more moment to repent? Just one drop? You're not going to like this answer. No. They had the law and the prophets. You did too. Well, I didn't really hold those Ten Commandments much. I remember when people talked about it, I thought that's kind of hypocritical. and All that stuff about prophecy, that's gloom and doom and destruction and repentance. I, I was more into affirmation. There is a sin unto death. Did I mention that earlier? The Bible says when he was in that pit, he begged, could I have one more chance? He said, no. Then he said, could I just ask? Now, now he's suddenly got compassion. See, he didn't have that on earth. He didn't need anybody. He had money. He had prestige. He had a big home. He had food to eat. He had people to take care of his needs and servants. Now he's all that stripped away. He's got compassion. God, I got five brothers. I don't want them to have to come here. You that burden for your brothers and sisters. sure don't want them to come here. Could you, could you please send somebody? He said, I did. I sent Moses and Elijah and a lot, a lot of other prophets. But, but, but they, they don't read the Bible and they, they don't think much of it. He said, stop. Well, if you just let somebody come and rise from the dead, if they could see somebody had power over death, they'd believe. How's that work for us for 21 centuries? He said, no. If they don't believe the law and the prophets... They wouldn't believe even if one had risen from the dead. There's a sin unto death. 
If you see your brother sinning a sin, not unto death, you need to pray for him that he'll be recovered before that stronghold, foothold becomes a stronghold and he becomes habitual in his sin to become hard-hearted toward Christ. Because there's physical death for sin. Sometimes he'll remove the sinner to keep from destroying his witness in a place. I didn't say that. That's what he did with Ananias and Sapphira. There's a missed opportunity. Any of you here say, Brother Nick, there was a time in my life I knew God was calling me to, and I said no, and it's never been the same. I, I've heard some of you sit in my office and tell me that story. But there's one last worse sin. One day I'm not going to be the preacher. I'm just going to be standing with y'all at the foot of the cross in the presence of the Lamb of God. And in that moment, there's one word that I heard from people already that they're going to hear. is when they stand up with all their arrogance and all their life and all their, I'll, I'm as good as old Nick Garland. I know I'll get in. I'll tell you, you're better. Because I know Nick Garland. You're better. But we don't get into heaven based on our merit. We get into heaven based on our, his mercy. And here's the most horrid words a man or woman will ever hear. Jesus! Who are you? you? You know me. No. Yeah, you know. I kept talking about the man upstairs. Maybe we were in good terms. You know me. Now, I didn't go to church a lot. I didn't have a whole lot of use for your Bible. I didn't give anything. And I sure wasn't going to go tell anybody about Jesus. I didn't want to teach. And Sundays were my family day. I didn't want to mess them up. I'll go sitting there hearing a preacher. But you know I love you deep down my heart. You want to know the most horrid words a person will ever hear? When the Son of God, who created that person, who offered himself as a sacrifice to buy him from sin, who rose from the death to give him eternal life, looks him in the face and says, I don't know you. Depart from me. Don't think he's going to do that with glee. Don't think he's going to say, I've been waiting on you. Get out of here. No, 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 no. God takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. His desire is that none should perish, but all come to eternal life. I'm talking to some today, very likely, that are presuming you're okay with God. Please don't. Presumption is not the same as profession. Presuming you know Jesus isn't the same as saying, I know that I know him. I'm not here today to talk you out of salvation, but I sure am here to warn you. There is a salvation that's sure, but presuming that you have salvation is not sure. I beg you, if you don't know Jesus, you ought to be the first to come to this altar today and say to a pastor, I need Jesus. Stand with me.